Wild Lives by Phonographic. Hey, and welcome to Wild Lives by Phonographic, a podcast about wild animals and their people. I'm Rochelle. Thank you for joining us. Today, we're speaking to Douglas Smith. Now, he's a globally acclaimed wolf expert and is a senior wildlife biologist at Yellowstone National Park. Now, this sprawling park spans nearly 9,000 square kilometres or 3,500 miles, and it's located in the US states of Wyoming, Montana and Idaho. Founded in 1872, it's the world's very first national park, and today it's also a UNESCO World Heritage Site. It's famous for its geyser called Old Faithful, but for wildlife lovers, Yellowstone is all about the wolves. In fact, today it's probably the best place on the planet to see wolves in the wild. But that hasn't always been the case, because although wolf packs once roamed from the Arctic tundra of America's north all the way through to Mexico, loss of habitat and extermination programs saw them virtually wiped out across much of the United States. Then, in the mid-1990s, 41 wild wolves from Canada and northwest Montana were released into the national park. Over a period of two years, the Yellowstone Wolf Restoration Project unfolded. And as expected, the wolves spread out to establish their own territories, and the population grew. Today, the endangered species is thriving in the area, with an estimated 528 wolves in the greater Yellowstone region and inside the park itself, around 108 wolves from 11 different packs. Yeah, man, the wolves are back. Our guest today, Doug Smith, is the leader of the Wolf Restoration Project in Yellowstone and has been with the program since its very beginning. He's got some pretty awesome stories for us too. Doug, thank you so much for joining us today. Now, you've been interested in wolves since a very young age, haven't you? Yeah, so I've studied, well, it's kind of a sappy story. I've been interested in wolves since I was a small boy, read about them, and then I got a volunteer job with a captive study of wolves in 1979. Yeah. And I hand-reared wolf pup. And that led to a job on an island in Lake Superior. Uh, that I worked there on and off for 15 years. That gave me experience. So I just applied to work in Yellowstone. You know, I lucked out. So during that time when you had the, the wolf pups, did you form really close relationships with them or it was more of a scientific approach? Well, that was a behavioral study, and mm-hmm. the researcher who was originally from Germany, his name was Eric Klinghammer, felt that it was best to socialize the wolves. Mm. And so he removed them from their mother at a few days of age, and I had to, with another woman, you know, babysit them 24 hours a day, wow. so that means you get up in the middle of the night and, and bottle feed them, and they did kind of bond to you. Uh, you bonded to, to them as well. But yeah, and then we returned them to the pack when they were a few months old, and they, they quickly adapted back to the pack, but they had kind of this imprint on you so you could manage them and do the behavioral research. You know, I've, I've had a lifelong interest in wolves, and I lucked out. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of people don't get to do what they love. Uh, it's too bad, but I did. You know, I just kept at it, and... You know, perseverance was my best skill, not necessarily intelligence or anything like that. But, you know, I I kept at it and got experience, and and here I still am, 40 years later. So you've been with the Yellowstone Wolf Recovery Project since its inception. 
Why were the wolves introduced to Yellowstone? Well, I think the best answer is ecological and ethical, but the true answer is probably policy and law. United States, 1973, we passed the Endangered Species Act. 1974, wolves were put on the endangered species list. And, you know, the list is hundreds of animals and plants long. And so it's difficult to decide which ones to recover. But, you know, it was it was public pressure, you know, grassroots organizations and people who kind of demanded that we focus on wolves. But it essentially was fueled by a law uh, that we restore wolves where they, they could be. But, you know, it was people that ultimately moved wolves to the top of the list. But I, I like to say it was an ethical decision because... You know, the question comes up, do people have the right to completely wipe another species off the mm. face of the earth? I think we're here to coexist with other species, not dominate them. Yeah. And so I think that's the best answer. But And then also ecological. I know you have dingoes in Australia. Yeah. There's big questions about what dingoes do to ecosystems. And you have a big fence that divides Australia. Mm. And dingoes on one side and not on the other. It's the same thing with wolves that we have found overwhelmingly that wolves do impact ecosystems and I think that's another reason to do it is to to restore the ecosystem. There are a few different wolf packs across the park and the greater Yellowstone area. Do you have a favorite? That's a tough question but of course I'm human and so I'm subject to all the foibles that humans have. Um, You know as a scientist we're supposed to be objective. (laughs) For the longest time my favorite pack was the Delta pack Hmm. Uh, named after the Yellowstone River Delta. And that's the most remote region in the continental United States, 32 miles from a road, which isn't that far. And I think that's kind of pathetic, especially by Australia standards. Hmm. But um, they're, they went, they're extinct now. They dissolved. And I guess the, my favorite pack now is a pack that has been in existence uh, since 1995. They're one of the first packs that we introduced, and they have a lineage that goes all the way back to them. And to them, and they live in the middle of the park, and their name is Molly's Pack. They were named after the late director of the Fish and Wildlife Service, who was really key in helping restore wolves to the park in Idaho, and so she died of a brain tumor, and so we named the pack to commemorate her. Uh, Molly's Pack, they live in Pelican Valley, and they're, they're one of my favorites. An amazing tribute to Molly as well. So um, a wolf pack is quite a complex social structure, isn't it? Can you tell us how the wolf pack actually functions in terms of the individuals within it? Well, they're a family. Mm-hmm. And you're very similar to people. So typically the parents, we call them the alpha male and the alpha female, and then they kind of have a pecking order that's linear uh, on down to the lowest ranking wolves. But it, it, it's just like a human family in that it hinges on mom and dad. And, you know, how they get big packs is they have a litter of pups every year. So you kind of have this multi-generational family. And some pups die, and, you know, they turn to yearling and two-year-old, three-year-old. Most of them leave by three, but rarely they stay longer. So you have all these wolves of different ages, and they leave and die and stay based on what they want to do. And so you get bigger packs, but ultimately packs are limited by food. So they, they can't get too big unless there's a lot of food. We, our biggest pack ever was 37, mm. the Druid Peak Pack in 2001, and that's just because they had adequate food. 
But, you know, so it's the older wolves, the breeders, who tend to run things and are most dominant, and everybody else kind of hinges on them and, you know, to, to put it bluntly, takes orders from them. But wolves aren't like people. It's, it's hard to tell who's in charge. It's subtle. It's observational. And they, they're not macho. You know, they don't want to prove themselves. They lead by example and um, respect. So you were mentioning just a moment ago about food. So they eat a wide variety of prey, but they're known to go for animals five to seven times their own size. How can they do that? Cooperation. So the we've studied this, and it varies. You know, the smallest prey they eat regularly. You know, they eat, they'll eat anything they can kill almost, but they can't live off of things unless they're large. We call them ungulates. Uh, another word for that is hoofed animals. And the smallest they'll eat are, are uh, deer. You know, in Europe, they'll, they'll eat boars, wild yeah. boars, which are smaller than deer even. But here it's deer. And, um, you know, a, a single wolf can, can kill a deer fairly easily if they can catch it. So the main defense of a deer is to outrun the wolf. And usually every healthy deer can outrun a wolf. But when you get to things like in Yellowstone and elk or a bison, they, they need more than one wolf to kill it. And so they cooperate in doing that. And we've actually, you know, mathematically studied this, but the optimal size to kill a elk is about four wolves. Mm. After that, adding more doesn't really help. And then for bison, it's actually 10 or greater. Wow. Bison can weigh up to 2,000 pounds. You know, so that's a thousand kilograms roughly. Mm. And your average wolf weighs about a hundred pounds. A big one might be one twenty, twenty, one twenty-five. And you know, they they need to work together to do it. Do they ever kill for sport, or do they kill more than they they can eat? No, it's a myth. They they don't kill for sport, and the reason they don't is when you kill something larger than you, it's dangerous. So the way to understand wolf killing is they have a risk-averse mentality. And so that does mean on occasion that they will kill more than they can eat. But that's ecological and evolutionary. You know, when oil is cheap, we buy Cadillacs or big trucks you got in Australia. And yeah. their gas bills are because gas is cheap. Same thing with wolves. You know, at the end of a hard winter, the prey are weak. So you kill more because you can, but wolves eat it all. I get pictures all the time by wolf haters of an elk killed by wolves that's uneaten. Well, I usually see snowmobile tracks or truck track or a guy on a horse. It's clear that the wolves were disturbed. Um, But one time in Yellowstone, I know this sounds bad and it's extremely rare, but it was a hard winter and they killed five elk in one day and no one bothered them. And over two weeks, they came back and ate everything. It's like they were harvesting. Yes. So they will kill more than they can eat at the moment, but left alone, they'll get back to it. And I get this all the time. Wolves kill for the fun of it. Wolves kill for sport. They're bloodthirsty. No, when you're going to get your brains bashed in, you don't kill uh, anything more than you need to. But if it's easy, the elk are weak, you're not going to get your brains bashed in. You kill more. They will kill, you know, 15 sheep in a night. Um, because sheep have no defense. We bred it out of them. 
it's called animal husbandry. And to husband an animal or to live with it, it's got to not be nasty. And so that means it's defenseless against wolves. So wolves, it is true, will kill 10, 15 sheep in a night sometimes. And that's a problem. And usually those wolves are killed by people, you know, shot down. Uh, but in nature, this really happens because elk, deer, bison are super hard to kill. It's what we call an evolutionary arms race. And when the wolf gets better, the elk gets better at the same time. So it's kind of this neck and neck fight the whole mm. way through. And only once in a great while can you kill more than you can immediately eat. So you mentioned before as well that it's through cooperation that they are able to hunt as a pack. So that would involve some kind of communication. What kind of ways do wolves communicate with each other? Yeah, hunting communication is very difficult. We actually don't know how that works. And I think how it works is they just respond to what the other wolf does. So there's there's not a lot of communication, but... You know, when four or five wolves are chasing an elk and one wolf does something, the other wolf adjusts to that wolf's actions mm. by doing its own action. Uh, outside of hunting behavior, they're very communicative. Uh, they're, they're not so much like people. You know, people are verbally oriented. You know, you and I are talking right now and you know everything that I'm doing. But wolves are observational learners and they're nonverbal. So they spend a lot of time looking at body language or mm. intent. I, you know, when we reintroduced the wolves in Yellowstone, we had them in pens. I would walk in the pen, and they immediately knew my demeanor. Uh, I was confident. I wasn't afraid of them. I projected, you know, strength. Mm. Other people who had helped me feed them were nervous. Oh, my God, I'm going into a pen full of wolves. They're going to, you know, eat me. And the wolves would avoid me and not avoid the other people because they could read them wow. very quickly. Uh they also vocalize a lot. They have small sounds that we call squeaking noises that they kind of use to keep track of each other when they're going through, you know, dense vegetation or they're running and they want to keep track of each other. Uh, they have kind of uh, growls and, and, and barks and then they howl. And howling's the most studied and maybe the most important because it's long-range communication to your own pack. So the average wolf pack in Yellowstone is 10 individuals mm. and they split up and they can tell individual howls from each other. So they know dad's over here, wow. mom's over there based on the howl. They know how far, but then they howl to communicate to other packs. They're very territorial. And so they say by howling, this is my territory, stay out. So they have a rich, rich communication system. do they come into conflict with each other in terms of territorial disputes and what happens if they, they do come into conflict? It can be bad. Mm. And, you know, they try and avoid each other. You know, most animals have methods of avoiding conflict and a lot of that depends on density. You know, in the far north, Alaska and Canada, wolf density is low because it's a, a hungry landscape. There's not a lot of food, so there's not many wolves. And so wolf packs run into each other very infrequently. And Yellowstone is one of the highest densities of wolves in all of North America. Mm. So the density is high, so wolves run into each other a lot. And most encounters are avoided through howling and scent marking. 
In other words, you advertise where your territory is, and you advertise where you are, and other packs will respond to it. But because they're competitive, if the other pack thinks you got an edge, they'll, they'll, they'll trespass. Hmm. Or there'll be a conflict at a territorial boundary. And actually, to be honest, we don't know how many times a year that happens per pack. But, you know, in Yellowstone, it, it could be substantial, 8, 10, 12 times a year. Wow. And usually it's a chase. Sometimes it's a fight. And sometimes a wolf dies, you know. So, you know, territorial battles are key. That's how you live or die as a wolf. If you don't have a territory, you ain't going to live. What about lone wolves, though? How do they fit into that kind of territoriality? They don't have territories. So a lone wolf is kind of a an aimless soul. And, you know, generally... It varies a lot. Yellowstone, we don't have very many lone wolves, but lone wolves are generally less than 5% of the population. And usually what they are is they're dispersing young wolf from a pack, so it's a pup born in a pack. It can't get a breeding position, so it strikes on its own to look for a wolf of the opposite sex to to breed with and start a pack. Uh, That's one way you get a lone wolf. And then the other way you get a lone wolf is a post-reproductive animal. So you've been in a pack for a number of years, uh, and you've lost your status. You, you leave the pack, and you're wandering around kind of at the end of your life. Sometimes you repair. Sometimes you join another pack. Sometimes you just live out your life. Um, are they generally male lone wolves, or are there females among them no, as well? No, it could be both. It could be both. In fact, we're studying that. Uh, males disperse at a higher rate than females. Females are more likely to inherit a breeding position in their pack than a male. And, you know, wolves avoid inbreeding, so that female won't breed in her pack if the breeding male is her dad. But wolves lead very short lives. They're not like a cat or a bear. The average lifespan of a wolf is probably five or six. So if they breed two or three years, they're doing really, because of that territoriality. That's really short. They kill each other at such a high rate, you know. 60% 60% of wolf death in Yellowstone is due to other wolves. And outside of Yellowstone, wolves even live shorter lives because they're persecuted by people. Mm. 80% cause of death uh, for wolves outside of Yellowstone is people. But either way, if you breed two, three years, you're doing great. And so if you're a female pup born to a pack, um, it's really likely by the time your breeding age the, the breeding male is not your dad. So the females typically stay, and we've had sometimes, you know, granddaughters breeding in the same pack. Males typically leave as loners, strike out to find a lone female. So females do disperse. It's not that they don't, they just do so at a lower rate, and that's how new packs are formed. But oddly, to answer your question, it's, it's really weird, and I don't want to read anything into this, and, and we haven't seen this enough to really quantify it, but former alpha males are tolerated more in the pack to stay when they're post-reproductive than females. So when you're done with your alpha reign in a wolf pack, we think it's more likely they're going to tolerate an old male than an old female. I and I don't know what that is. Maybe females clash at a higher rate than males do. Maybe males are easier going and aren't threatened by the old man and the young female is. I don't know. That's so interesting. 
Another thing that is really interesting to me is that after the um, the wolves were in, reintroduced, the ecosystem itself flourished. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? The status of wolves in Yellowstone impacted the ecosystem. It's gotten worldwide, worldwide you know, publicity. And in short, to explain this, what we've seen, and you know, we have evidence to support this, but wolves were reintroduced to Yellowstone. Mm-hmm. We did that. Cougars, the big cats, came back on their own, mm. and bears were another eliminated, but they have increased in population size, mm. and that's the top layer of the food chain. And the return of all those big carnivores caused the elk population to decline. And some of that's due to human hunting as well, but when the elk declined, their impacts on the vegetation We've studied the woody vegetation more than the grasses, but there's an impact on both. But the impact of elk on the vegetation was altered, and it allowed the woody vegetation to flourish. That flourishing allowed other animals, and we've only studied a few, songbirds and beavers, beavers are the largest rodent in North America, have increased because that woody vegetation created habitat for them. There's probably many other species that were impacted that we haven't studied, but that's a kind of trickle-down effect of having wolves, cougars, and bears come back. What has been a misconception uh, is that it was all due to wolves, Um, but we've had a total carnivore recovery. Another misconception is that Yellowstone is fixed. In other words, it is the way it is before wolves were wiped out, you know, because people kill off all the wolves. The last one was killed in 1926. The last cougar was killed in the 1930s. And everybody thinks, well, Yellowstone's saved again. No, you know, without cougars and wolves for 70 years, um, their return has caused Yellowstone to go off in a new direction. You know, ecologically, it's hard to restore nature back to the way it was, and that's another misconception mm. that we have we've we've fixed it, and, and those are valid criticisms. Now, back to the wolves, though. As humans, should we be afraid of them? No, that's another misconception. I mean, there's three reasons why people don't like wolves. One, we compete with them for game. You know, they eat the same things we hunt. They do occasionally kill livestock, you know, so ranchers and farmers don't like them. And the third is that they're a human safety threat, and that's a bad reason. Uh, wolves aren't dangerous to people. They're the least dangerous carnivore in North America. Um, bears and cougars attack more people than wolves do. Mm-hmm. You know, dogs bite hundreds of thousands of people a year in the United States. And there's been two people killed in North America in the last 120 years. Two people. Wow. And there's been 20 attacks. And the attacks and fatalities are due to habituated wolves. Wolves losing their fear of people, and that's very hard to do. Uh, And it typically occurs through people feeding them. You know, like six of those attacks were when they were making the Alaska pipeline in the 70s. Um, And, you know, pipeline workers from Oklahoma and Texas who weren't familiar with wolves, you know, taking a break would feed wolves, go to throw them sandwiches. And pretty soon wolves would come in close and the guys were hand-feeding them. But one day you don't have a sandwich to feed them or you don't want to feed them a sandwich and they bite you on the hand. 
And so losing their fear of people is the first step. And, you know, the two fatalities, one was a pack of wolves that lived by a dump in northern Canada. And another woman was uh, jogging outside of a town. She was very uh, small stature, and she was running with earbuds in. So she didn't hear the approaching wolves, and anybody fleeing from a running carnivore mm. is going to get chased. Yeah. You know, I mean, try it with dogs. Do it in Australia. You run from a dog, it's mm. almost always going to chase you. In, in Africa, the, the motto is only dinner runs. So if, if you're running, the carnival considers you dinner, so you're fair game, really. Yeah. So, you know, I'm running through my neighborhood and a dog runs out at me, I turn to face him. If you can just pinpoint one thing that has kept you intrigued by wolves for your entire career, are you able to do that? Yeah. They're more interesting than people. <laughs> you know, I find people kind of boring, you know, with with gossip and soap operas and TV shows and movies. You know, what story about people haven't you heard? It's, it's not interesting. People aren't interesting. But when you get inside a wolf's story, you know, life's a struggle. I don't mean to be too philosophical here, but it's a struggle. Surviving's hard. How do they do it? What's their solution to the problem of life? Now, that is interesting. And it's so hard to get inside a wolf's life. It's even harder to get inside a wolf's head. I mean, they're not going to tell you what they're thinking. And they don't like you. And they don't want anything to do with you. So that's intriguing that's difficult and when you do it the answers are novel and they're revealing when you get inside a person's head it's because they talk to you and half the time they're not telling you the truth people are very deceitful they're always trying to kind of, and they may not know it they're always trying to work some angle uh and when you do find out the truth ah, i've heard that before that's happened a million times. With wolves, it's different, and it's fascinating. Mm. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Doug. It's been amazing to have you. Yeah, we wish you every success with the Yellowstone Wolves and look forward to continuing to watch you from afar. Thank you. It's been really cool talking all the way to Australia. Thank you for the opportunity. <laughs> thank you. Wild Lives by Phonographic. Follow us on omni.fm or search for Wild Lives by Phonographic on iTunes. Subscribe today and you'll never miss an episode.